Welcome back to the Anglo Bull War podcast, episode 73. This week, Denise Raitz finds himself walking while the great Devet hunt begins in the Northern Cape and Free State. I would like to thank listeners for the wonderful messages I've received and suggestions about topics for future casts. Over the last year, a number of listeners have asked that I take a closer look at the American involvement in the Boer War, and I'm busy collecting stories and information for that episode, which should pop up by the end of the month. Right now, we're swinging into the saddle alongside Denise Rates and his brother. However, horse sickness was beginning to take its toll in the damp conditions of the summer on the Highfelt. His own had succumbed a few weeks before, and as we've heard, Rates had been loaned that crazy horse called Malpert. The highly strung beast may have been hard to manage, but he was an indefatigable mount. At the beginning of February 1901, Rates and his brother Arndt began to move with the Afrikaner Cavalry Corps, or ACC. The unit was a shadow of its former self, decimated both by horse sickness, typhoid and other diseases. Half of the men were now forced to walk as their animals had begun to die off. They had made the disastrous decision to seek shelter in the badlands to the northwest of Johannesburg, where fevers lurked. Rates admits, We were now back in the Scarfabergen country near Johannesburg, where we'd taken the refuge before. This mistake proved to be our undoing, for the area is notoriously unhealthy for horses during the rainy season, and our animals began to die so rapidly that by the time we made for higher ground, more than half the ACC were dismounted. He remained in the saddle riding Malpert, and his brother was still on what he called his toll-free chestnut. So we started off, he writes. A miserable band, most of the men on foot, carrying their saddles and equipment on their backs, and the rest of us not knowing when we should be doing the same. They broke out of the badlands, but the open felt was dangerously exposed, and they turned north into the highlands of the Machalisberg. Eventually, they reached the old wagon pass, close to where Jan Smuts and his commando had set fire to dozens of wagons that were part of a British relief column only a few weeks before. It was then that Rates noticed that old Malpert, the crazy horse, was showing signs of distress. His eyes began to stare wildly and his breath became ragged. The horse was staggering as it walked, lagging at times. But a column of English cavalry was close by, and the ACC needed to speed up over the pass before dark. Rates decided to leave Malpert in an orchard and walked alongside the ACC to their camp for the night. Next morning, on looking over the cliffs, I saw him lying dead. He had been game to the end, pure Pert, all horse, as the men called him, and my brother and I climbed down to pay a last visit to his poor, emaciated carcass. Something had passed in the night, and it wasn't only Malpert. It was actually the death of the ACC. The men realized that there was virtually no chance now of reaching General de la Rey, let alone Christian de Vette, who was 500 kilometers away. An argument ensued about their next steps. The Afrikaner Cavalry Corps commander Jan Nachel suggested they return to the hill country they'd just left and send a message to Kurs de la Rey to send horses. But almost half the men refused, saying de la Rey was also suffering from a shortage of horses and it was unlikely he'd receive any before winter. These men wanted to turn north over the Machalis mountain range for the warmer climate of the bushveld. Reitz and his brother agreed with these men, although for their own reason. They wanted to go and find their father, who was travelling with Louis Boucher, somewhere in the eastern Transvaal. 
they believed he would be able to provide them with horses. There was very little discussion and no ill feeling, for Nachel was a sensible man, and that same afternoon all was concluded, Rates writes. The men said goodbye to each other, and Nachel led his group down the pass, and were lost to view. With him were the two sons of the late Commandant Malan, as well as an Englishman called Fred Hancock, who had been schooled in Bloemfontein along with Rates and his brother. They never saw each other again, and Rates says, I think most were hunted down or shot out before they could obtain remounts, for, as I was to discover, their hopes of getting horses from General de la Rey were practically nil, as he had none to give. The second group, along with Rates and his brother, turned north and climbed the Makhali's range, some on horseback, most walking. Thus ended the Afrikaner Cavalry Corps, a unit that had fought together since the Natal front. It is somewhat symbolic that the unit died a day after Malpert, the crazy horse, died. It was a somber moment for Rates. These few moving north almost immediately broke up into smaller groups, with Rates and his brother deciding to tarry amongst the boulders at the summit of the Makhalis that night, rather than rush off. They were in no hurry. After all, their father was somewhere in the Leidenberg country, 450 kilometers away, which was no easy journey. Furthermore, there was only a single horse between them, so they decided to take turns walking that distance. The next day they loaded up the chestnut and started down into the Green Valley, the other men of the SEC long since disappeared. Towards evening, though, they came across an ox wagon outspanned in a patch of scrub and owned by what Rates called a stout-hearted old Boer lady. She was on her way to the bushveld too, and offered the Rates brothers a lift. She was not alone, travelling with her was a young black man who worked as an ox wagon driver. Her husband was fighting with Coeur de la Rey, and she had been accosted by the British a number of times. Rather than face the civilian prison camps which Lord Kitchener was setting up across the country, she had decided to make a break north. The brothers helped yoke the oxen, then Rates had a terrible realisation. He had somehow left saddlebags at the bottom of the mountain, now wanted to rush back to find them. As he explains, it was a slight matter that altered the whole subsequent course of the war for me. Saddlebags were scarce and extremely valuable back in 1901, with leather being hard to come by as the war continued. They were doubly valuable for rats because he had stored salt he had found in a deserted farmhouse the week before in these same bags. Denise borrowed his brother's horse and rode back to the mountains they'd left only that morning, thinking that he'd catch up to the ox wagon by the next day. By the time he reached the spot where he'd placed his bags, it was dark so he built a fire and spent the night there. At daybreak, he bent over his horse to undo the hobble of rope he had tied around its legs when it suddenly lunged at him and savaged his arm. The bites were not too serious, but he realized immediately something more sinister was afoot. A sure sign he was not himself, for ordinarily he was gentle, but I saddled up nonetheless and rode him down the mountain and halfway across the floor of the valley, by which time... The telltale flecks of foam at his nostrils showed that the horse sickness was on him. This was a critical issue, for he was many miles behind his brother and the ox wagon. Rates led his horse to an abandoned farmhouse, where he let the critically ill horse rest in the shade, the only hope he had for some kind of miracle. But within an hour, the horse was dead. Rates was in a pickle. He decided to rest as the sun was at its zenith, and he wanted to walk in the cool of the evening. The house had been used by the British, 
He found cigarette butts and bully beef tins. Then he found a package of newspapers, which he decided to read. I learned for the first time that Queen Victoria was dead, that there was a war in China, that Lord Roberts had been superseded by Lord Kitchener, and I read of a great many other events that had been passing in the outside world. He also read that the Boer commanders were raiding far down into the Cape Colony, and this excited the hardy young man. The fact that Judge Herzog and General Kritzinger were causing so much stress and were close to two of the main ports of the Cape also intrigued him, and he immediately decided to head south. This meant leaving his brother, and he was alone and on foot. But my mind was made up, he writes, and abandoning all thought of overtaking my brother, I threw my saddle across my shoulders, and carrying my rifle in one hand and my cooking tin in the other, I started back on a journey that was to take me very far indeed. Next week, we'll hear how Rates bumps into a group of Dobbers, a Boer religious sect said to be something like the Quakers. They issued modern life even in 1901, and he was to have a number of adventures with these men. Lord Kitchener, meanwhile, was determined to rid the countryside of the enigmatic Boer general Christian de Wett, who was threatening to enter the Cape to follow Kritzinger and Herzog. Kitchener was also trying to target General Louis Boerter, who had continued to attack his forces in the eastern Transvaal and who had made it known that he was planning to invade Natal. Kitchener threw his volcanic energy into mounting a major offensive unlike any other so far seen in the war, while skeleton forces were deputed in the hope of distracting De Wet in the west. Operations had begun in the last days of January, just when De Wet was leaving the vicinity of Senegal to move down to the Cape. Three campaigns were undertaken by the British at the same time across an area half the size of Europe. He appointed General French and Littleton to command the offensive against Boerter and De Wet respectively, while Methuen exercised command in the western Transvaal. That was to end badly for Methuen, who ended up being captured by his quarry, General de la Rey, but that was months away. The Boers had already suffered a setback, though it was of little real importance. Judge Herzog's commando of a few hundred men were travelling through the 480 kilometres between Da'ar and the Atlantic Ocean. So Herzog decided to send scouts ahead to scan the sea from the bluffs of Lambert's Bay, looking for the promised ship coming from Europe, bearing munitions and material for the Boers. They were overjoyed when they spotted a ship in the bay, but it flew a white ensign and greeted the Boers who sat in their horses with a few shells. Worse, a column of irregular troops set up as part of the new drive to capture the remaining Boers lurked nearby. They were called Kitchener's Fighting Scouts and were commanded by a famous hunter called Johannes Kolenbrander. These irregulars drove away Herzog's commando, which then rested near Carnarvon, west of Da'ar. The much-touted support from Europe and ship-bearing goods for the Boers was nowhere to be seen. Herzog had decided to wait at Carnarvon for De Wet, who had sent a message that he was moving and should arrive within a week or two. In the south, Kritzinger decided that he too would pull back from the position close to Port Elizabeth and hid in gorges east of Nauport. The great De Wet hunt was in full swing. General Knox commanded the closest forces to De Wet as he hunkered down near Tabanchu. Again, there is much historical symbolism here. Tabanchu is a town dominated now by a casino, but it was first settled by Sutu speakers in 1833. 
Chief Morocco II, who headed up the Buseleka section of the Baralong, migrated there after a decade of wandering through the felt. They had originally lived close to the Vaal River near Johannesburg, but were driven off their land by Mzilikatsi, an Indebele chief. He, in turn, was on the run from Shaka, and eventually his people settled in western Zimbabwe, around the current city of Bulawayo. Curiously, the Baralong living at Tabanchi regarded the Fuertrekkers and then the Boers as allies. The Situ is close to Tabanchu, a nation that had never been defeated by colonials, but also regarded as enemies by the Baralong. The vet found himself at this spot in the first week of February 1901, among friends, both black and Boer. He was desperate to make his way into the Cape Colony, but also knew that many columns of British troops were tracking his every move. General Knox had placed reinforcements at Betuli Railway Bridge, Springfontein and Norfals Pont, which meant the commander could not cross at these fords. The vet says, I had now to find some trump card which would spoil the game he was playing. So he ordered his second-in-command, General Fruneman, to proceed to Hopetown, which would give the British the impression that he was concentrating his forces in that area. Fruneman immediately captured a goods train near Jachesfontein, which means Hunter's Spring. His men blew up the railway line in front and behind the train, then ransacked and looted a great deal of goods. It should not be forgotten, says the vet, that there were scarcely any factories in South Africa, and this was more especially the case in the two republics. And, as all imports had been stopped for some considerable time, it was natural that any booty which consisted of such things as saddles, blankets, and ammunition was very acceptable. When the burghers had finished helping themselves to the booty, they set fire to the train. Meanwhile, De Vett continued to lie low, sending scouting parties, openly foraging north to give the impression he was looking for a weakness there. General Knox took the bait. The English forces began to move northwards along the Orange River. De Vett then began his attempt to enter the Cape by moving some of the commander unit, the guns and the wagons to a spot between the stations of Springfontein and Jochesfontein at night. During the day, they hid. By the 8th of February, De Vett had overtaken General Fruneman near Philippolis. That was a mere 25 kilometres from the mighty Orange River. And on the same day, he crossed over the river into the Cape Colony. But soon after crossing, he received a report from his scouts that there were about 20 of the enemy on a strong hilltop position, or Skanza. This is where, once again, the notoriously fickle Boer soldier let him down. No sooner had he given a command for the position to be stormed in order to stop the group from sending a message that De Vett had made it across the river than the Felcornet, who De Vett prefers not to name, hesitated. A member of De Vett's staff, Willem Pretorius, as well as four Boers, ended up taking the copy with 20 men after a short and extremely violent firefight. There was more booty on the hilltop, 3,000 rounds of ammunition, new rifles, horses, bridles, saddles and bandoliers. This guerrilla war meant that many Boers now used the British Lee Medford rifle and had discarded their trusty Mauses. De Vett writes sardonically that When the Felcornet at last arrived with his twenty men, he certainly proved himself very useful in carrying away the booty. Shortly afterwards, De Vett Stellenboshed the Felcornet. That was a British term which meant sent him away in disgrace. If you remember the earlier podcast, Stellenbosch is a town in the Cape where useless English officers were sent when they were deemed too ineffectual to lead men. It's also where at least one officer shot himself upon being Stellenboshed. 
Two days later, General Furi arrived with reinforcements, and De Wet's commander now numbered well over a thousand men. Twenty-four kilometers away, however, two columns of British waited. They had come from Colesburg and were a serious threat to De Wet's burghers. The great De Wet hunt was in full swing. Who would succeed in this game of cat and mouse on the vast expanse of the Karoo Desert? We'll have to find out next week as we've run out of time. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes. You can also message me through the website abwarpodcast.com. Thanks again to all those who've sent me photographs and a special thanks to Robin who yesterday gave me a wonderful book of Boer newspaper articles called The War Reporter. So until next week, goodbye. Een zonder gedaan langs die mooie rivierse val, het zeevroerlogsdag gebleef. Hoe breng mij terug naar die Oud-Ransval, daar waar mij zaal.